This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. <laughs> How are you doing there? It's uh, the podcast. I hope you're well. I hope uh, your life is going okay now that we're out of the <laughs> lockdown. Uh, John and I are having a, a little giggle. I was trying to explain. Uh, certain things about the family and I was talking about how my missus was annoyed about such and such a, a thing particularly she claims to be uh, very sensitive to certain noises and John just said it's not the noise she's sensitive to it's you <laughs> after years it's the elder lemon in the commune <laughs> oh man I've lost control of the commune oh, yeah. I'm lo- I realised this uh, John and I were chatting during the week and uh, I realised that I'm no longer actually the dad in the house I'm just the elder lemon of the commune <laughs> And I've lost control. There's people, there's people staying in the basement. There's fellas have moved in. There's girlfriends turning up. Caravans outside. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Listen, if you've any, uh, if you're listening there, and you have any um, advice for an lad who's lost control of a commune, can you please help me? It's time for you to move out, man. <laughs> it kind of is. But the lockdown, it's all gone. All the all any discipline has gone out the window in yeah. our family. You know, it's just... I've noticed. <laughs> Anyway, how are you, my friend? I'm very good. I am very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, like there's nothing much to report in my own life except that I've been watching the whole Black Lives Matter develop in, in the States and indeed across the world. And it does feel like there's something different going on. Yeah, no, it's and, really and, big. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the statues and the slavery and. Yeah. All, yeah. I mean, I watched. Have you seen the documentary 13th? I saw it a long time ago. I watched it last night and I I would recommend it to anybody to have a look at it just to get a grasp on the history of the civil rights movement in America. And the 13th, the title refers to the 13th Amendment, which was what was written into the Constitution after the Civil War. It's basically the abolition of of slavery. But the funny thing about it is There's a clause and there's a line in the 13th Amendment that basically says, I can't remember the exact wording, but it says something like, slavery is abolished and blah, 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 all Americans are free, except if you are a criminal. So essentially what happened, particularly in the southern states with the Jim Crow laws, they introduced all these laws that basically 
made the black community criminals. And it's amazing that when you look at the prison system in, in America, well, put it this way, the American population is about 6.5% of the global population. Yeah. But the American prison population is 25% of the global prison population. Wow, is it that high? That high. And 40%. And of those, how many are black people? 40% or just over 40%. And the black population is about 10% in the United States. So Something like that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I'll tell you, it's funny you talk about the 13th. I had a very strange experience about 20 years ago. I was given a speech in the Keys, you know, the Florida Keys? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, Fancy. being a total Egypt, I didn't realise that Miami's quite far from the Florida Keys, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I would fly to Miami and get a bus, it'll be grand, right? And so I rented a car, and it's a long, it's a long drive. And uh, actually, the time I'd been in Florida, the only time before that was in the 1994 World Cup, watching the era. Oh, it was were you at that? Oh, I was stonking. Right. Even though we were hammered Which by Holland, the Holland back, Holland, you're right. It was, right, right. Uh, it was Paddy's in a hundred degree heat yeah, yeah. in a place called Church Street. They box, you know, the American, they kind of box off. You can only drink in a certain street. Yes. And they're going to box you off. Yeah. Into this it was yeah, like just yeah, full yeah. of Paddy's. But about a couple of years later, I was down and I was driving and it was, I remember it was dusk and we were, I was driving through the Everglades and it's a very evocative place, right? Mm. So the sun was going, going down and it was, you know, it had that really kind of lagoon feeling. And then I saw in the, middle of the motorway, about 50 blokes in jumpsuits. I think they right. were orange or yellow jumpsuits. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a chain gang. It was a prison chain gang. Yeah. I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. And they were all black and, of course, three or four slightly overweight guards, white guards. Yeah, yeah. And they were cutting the grass in the middle. And it was such a strange feeling. It was really quite eerie, you know? Because I didn't realise what was going on. And then I thought, Jesus, and that's, that's a chain gang. That was in 19, no, about 2000, 2001, yeah. 2002. And, and that's, I was, that's I was what quite that... shocked by it. I was really, gosh, I was like, yeah. Jesus, this is weird. And I remember going down and saying it to the people I was talking to. I shrugged their shoulders as if, yeah. yeah. I, but uh, but that's, that's what that little clause in the 13th Amendment allowed. It allowed the continuation of, of slavery through the prison system. But the other thing that really bothered me about it as well is that if you were a convicted federal criminal, then you do your time, but you're not allowed to vote after that. Are you not? No, because you're a federal criminal. So you are basically, you lose the right you lose to representation. The right to vote. Yeah. That is extraordinary. That is extraordinary. Well, I mean... And so given the fact that there's such a high proportion of black criminals, in inverted commas, that they don't get to vote again. Yeah, no, I think the whole thing, I think the world is definitely tilting on its axis this time. Yeah. And I think this is going to lead to some significant changes. What is very interesting is the way in which history is now being rewritten. Not not just in the States, but in the yeah. UK as well. And the Colson guy in Slave Trader yeah. in Bristol. I mean, Bristol, you know, there's, there's a reason why Liverpool and Bristol have the oldest black populations in London, or in the UK, because they were both slave traders, yeah. trading centres, right? And I remember that. Remember the St. Paul's riot in 82, 83, and the Brixton, uh, the Toxter riots in, yeah. around the same time? Yeah. These were the oldest black communities in, in the UK. They were vicious. And, but it's because they were, they were the first port for slaves. Right. Yeah, Another okay, very interesting yeah. thing is in British maritime law, do you know 
something quite fascinating. I had not been aware of this, except my mate Kevin. You know my mate Kevin? Yeah. My, that's, my, that's his thing, isn't it? Maritime yeah, yeah. Law. Maritime Law. He's a very, very, that's a big shout out to Kevin Costello, <laughs> a great professor and lecturer of law in UCD. And Kevin has a mind of information of very interesting and sometimes obscure facts. But this is a very interesting yeah. one. That in British maritime law, boats coming, ships coming from the Caribbean were not allowed to dock in Ireland. Why? Because they didn't want Irish ports to build up, to be built up. So part of the British commercial infrastructure, colonial infrastructure here, was that boats, ships needed to have a certain pass and a certain license to dock in Cork or in Ireland. Right. Ahead of docking in England. So our trade, isn't that really interesting? Because you forget that the colonies, the objective of making Ireland a colony, the objective of a colony is to impoverish it. Yeah. And take all the goodies, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the clauses, so one of the reasons that maybe Ireland never had a slave trading port in the same way as they had in England was because ships coming from the Atlantic, I told you about the Atlantic Triangle. Yeah, yeah. So the Brits yeah. would have guns go to West Africa, they're traded for slaves, for people. People go to the Caribbean, the people are traded for sugar and coffee yeah. and cotton and back to England. And... That was one of the reasons. But there were a fair few Irish slave There were, tribes. there were, but I'm just saying that there wasn't a huge slave trading yeah. centre here. Not because we were particularly angelic, I suspect, yeah. but because the Brits had created a colonial commercial infrastructure, which well, isolated Ireland. But I wonder, will they change the name of the street in Havana, Cuba? You know, O'Reilly Street? I've been on it. Yeah, I me have, too. I have been That's on Hemingway's it. bar. Yeah, it, I've it has a little it. sign outside the in bar. three languages: in Spanish, yeah. Irish, and English. Yeah, and it's about two nations, island nations. That's right. Yeah, and I remember, uh, I remember bringing the kids there and saying, "Look at that! Look at that!" <laughs> you know, because the, the one thing about the Irish is we we can always find common cause with any oppressed race. But yeah, but you the know, problem- sometimes it's the Palestinians, sometimes it's the Jews, yeah. sometimes it's the Africans, sometimes it's the American Indians. But I, I, I looked at that, we, myself and Alan Joe were over there and we were sitting outside drinking our... Mojitos. Mojitos. Uh, and it was fantastic. And we were very proud looking at this until we realised that O'Reilly was one of the biggest slave traders at the time in was that he? era. Was yeah. he? That was, that that was, was, that was O'Reilly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's been, a, it's been a, an interesting week. The good thing about the week coming up, John, is uh, the Dorky Literary Awards are on next Saturday. Oh, yes. Yeah. Where we Brilliant. are... We are awarded, giving away or awarding uh, two brilliant writers is the announcement of the winner of the Dorky Literary Awards. Oh, yeah. Two, two categories. One is emerging and one is emerging writers with so first books or people who are really starting out. And then the one is established writers, you know, people who've, who've written quite a bit. And, Fantastic. Yeah, no, it's great. So if, if, you're, if you're interested, if you want to see the shortlist, have a look at it. It's uh, com. What are you laughing at? You don't say W, that's so uncool. <laughs> You're such an elder lemon. <laughs> I told you. I lost I've lost control of the comment. DorkyLitteryAwards.com. No WWW. And I'd I'd really like to thank Zurich, who are our sponsors and are big promoters for at, at the book festival for for basically writing the check for for these writers. So fair play to them because good stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's great. So that's that's the Dorky Literary Awards, not WWW. DorkyLitteryAwards.com. <laughs> Calm. If you want to look at the shortlist, six great emerging writers, six fantastic established writers. Economics. 
What's up apparently, with that? Apparently we know something about that. Uh, what are we talking about this week, Mark? You know what we're talking about, John? We're talking about reimagining the economy after COVID. And when I say after COVID, I don't mean that there's going to become a certain day that in actual fact COVID will be over. Well, this is it, yeah. But I mean, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. I think it's the, the idea of living with this yeah. pandemic. I even uh, saw over the weekend, there's been another outbreak in Beijing and they've locked parts of Beijing down. I saw that. Uh, very, you know, so look, that's the way it's going and to be. And the R number is going the, up. Is going up in the UK. Well, actually, you know, we talk about the UK very briefly. You know, this idea, John, that we spoke about it again a while ago, that the underlying conditions of a patient are exposed by COVID. Yeah. So if you have a weakness, if you have lung, weak lungs or whatever, you're a certain age, it's very clear that the underlying weaknesses and fragilities of societies are being exposed by COVID. Societies that were, that don't have this idea of coherent social capital, that can't come together yeah. at a certain level, those edges, those rough edges are being exposed. And I'm looking at the UK now and, you know, from the very, from the top down, what I see is the chickens of the last 40 years of UK politics coming mm. home to roost. The divisiveness, the class system, the regional disparities. Do you think that's London. just in the UK or do you I think? I think it's more in the UK. I contrast that to what I see happening, in, what I see happened in Italy. Yeah. Okay. And there seems to have been a significant coming together of the Italians, of all left and right, north and south, urban and rural, cosmopolitans, the political system seem to come together in the face of this. Um, the UK is different. The UK is fracturing in the face of it. Mm. And, and I think something we might talk about over the course of the next yeah. few weeks. Along might, with America is fracturing we, as well. Along with America. So basically it's, it's the societies where there were deep, social, political, and economic inequalities yeah. and problems seem to be unable to come together in the face of this. And, and they've and also had a, a deep trauma since June 2016, since the Brexit was announced. You know, it's a culture war now. Yeah. And it's a, it's a deep, deep culture war. And it's playing out on various different levels. In, in England, I'm not saying the UK, in England. And... Uh, I think this will be fascinating to watch over the course of the summer, how this plays out, how politics in the UK shifts. You know, it's interesting. Emily Maitlis is an old maid of ours, the, the Newsnight. Newsnight, uh, yeah. And she, like, she was basically given the elbow for telling the truth about Dominic Cummins. She interpreted it. And it's just interesting how the BBC is but so worried. It's not the BBC way. The BBC is so worried about its licence fee that they take... Emily off air, and I think she's probably one of their best journalists. And she's really in command of her game, and she's she owns that show. And but I'm, what I'm saying is, it's interesting the the rawness of the debate yeah. in the UK. On the other hand, of course, we have a new government this week. I think, yeah, and yeah. the Greens are having a scrap. Yeah, I I can't make head nor tail of it at the moment. I'm just waiting for it all all the dust to settle, and then say, okay, what's the story? What's the story? <laughs> well, I mean, what I'm thinking about this week, John, is the opportunity to reimagine Ireland after this shock of the pandemic, right? So we know the economy is going to be So first of all, do you think that, that a new government will enable this? Yeah, enable I, I, a, a, a new, new government, you have to come with a new thought. You can't just say, okay, we're, we're a government and it's going to be the same. You yeah. have to come. Look, we know unemployment is going to be a lot 
significantly higher than we ever imagined for a long time. We know the economy, even if the economy recovers quickly, the rate of which people will be coming back to work, particularly in labor-intensive industries like retail, mm. like hospitality, mm. like tourism, these are labor-intensive industries, yeah. is going to take some time. But now is the time to think, okay, well, how do we reimagine the country? What do we want to do? What do we want to do to make the country more resilient, less fragile, richer and wealthier? Yeah. And of course, we know that what's happening in the European Union with the mutualization of debt, when Germany and France have actually said, okay, we're going to make grants available yeah, yeah. and they're going to be free yeah. and we're going to pay. That is the beginning of a process moving towards closer union. Closer union means anomalies like our tax system will be focused on by France yeah. in particular. They've so been after that for ages. They've been after that for ages. And, and, and I can understand what they're, what they're saying, right? Yeah. So the question is then, how do we bridge this gap? How do we prepare ourselves? And I've always felt that the difference, and this is, and was, I've, I've reading something very interesting, I'll, I'll talk to you about in a second. The difference between what the multinationals ought to pay. So if you divide their annual profit they make in Ireland mm. by 100 and yeah. multiply it by 12 and a half, that's what they ought to pay. Yeah. So approximately multinationals make 120 to 130 billion euros profit here a year. Yeah. So if you, it's a huge figure. Yeah, I know right? it is. It's I can't quite get my head around the number. So but. if you divide that by 100 and multiply it by 12, it means they should be paying about 17 or 18 billion euros in tax. Right. But they're paying eight yeah. or nine, depending on, on which way it goes, right? And they're also one of our biggest sources of tax income. So the difference between the two could be eight or nine billion a year. Yeah. Right? Between what they ought to pay and what they actually pay. Now, France wants us to come after all that and demand it all in tax and get it in as revenue, okay, as, get as, as income, right? I think what could be more interesting for us is to actually get that in as equity, as shares in their companies. Yeah. And then, like Norway has done, build a sovereign wealth fund for each individual in this country. And each individual will have a small proportion of that wealth fund. And then, rather than use the wealth fund, John, as a pension fund, yeah. use it as a startup fund. Because I think what, you need, what we need to understand is that in the future, the way to create wealth in societies is through businesses. It's through startups. Yeah. It's through entrepreneurial commercial yeah. activity, yeah. making something here. So the idea is, one of the problems for lots and lots of businesses in Ireland, startup businesses, is there is no capital here. So basically, the, the model of the bank should be, you save, okay, let's say I save. Yeah. But you go to the bank and say, David's saving, but can I have that money to invest in my, in my company or my business or yeah. whatever, right? And the banks then act as a recycling of savings. So my savings are recycled to you because you want to invest. Yeah. And that's how it yeah. works. But Irish banks act not as recyclers, but as what I would call safety deposit boxes. They don't lend out the money. So the flow of money to, to businesses, what right. they do is they lend to bloody property. And property is stupid, yeah. right? So the idea is how then do you create an entrepreneurial culture in a country? Now think about this country. This country is in a monetary union with zero interest rates, 
and yet we have a capital constraint for business. That makes no sense. Yeah. We have a credit crunch for business when we're in a monetary union with zero interest rates. Why? Because the banking system is broken. And then what you could do with this fund, this is the idea, and I want to yeah. go on to something I read this week which really intrigued me. With a fund like this, you could say, okay, everyone has a certain small allocation of this wealth fund. You can use that allocation as collateral to de-risk your venture. So if you go and you say, I want to create a startup company, and they'd say, what is it? And you'd say, I believe it's going to be in podcast production. Right? Okay. And you say, I think this is a way forward, and I, and I believe there's a market. But I haven't really figured it out. But here's my tentative yeah. P&L, my forecasts. And the bank says, well, John, that's great. But the 100 grand you're looking for, we're not going to give it because you're too risky. Right? That's what happens at the yeah, moment. Yeah. You say, that's cool. That's fine. I'm too risky. But I'm not going to give you my bit of the sovereign wealth fund as collateral. So you've got Apple shares or Google shares yeah. or Facebook shares, whatever. And so it de-risks your venture. Then the bank feels happy to give you the money not because you're the collateral, but because these shares are the collateral. I understand. So you de-risk the whole thing. And in so doing, you create a seed capital culture that facilitates entrepreneurial activity. And in so doing, we could become, on this island, an absolute mecca for startups in Europe. Right? Yeah. So you use the available cash you use the multinationals, you change the way they look at the world in order to build an, an infrastructure of entrepreneurial activity here. And, and it seems to me that that's the sort of big thinking we need to do. We yeah. say, where are we going to be in 50 years? What is this society? Yeah. Okay, let me ask you a couple of questions on that then. First of all, if everybody has their share... A stake, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, their stake. What do you imagine value of that stake to be? Well, you see, because if, if it's only a, if a grand, think, no, or, or be. if you, you think if, if if we're talking ten billion euros mm -hmm. per year, do the math. Yeah. Do the math, <laughs> right? If you're talking ten billion euros divided by five million people, and you look at that over ten years, and that could grow to a hundred billion. Yeah, you're talking significant hundreds of thousands of euros collateral each. It's a well, phenomenal. You know, that that is a huge amount of money. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so what, what you're trying to do is you're trying to redistribute the wealth of the multinationals in an equitable fashion. Yeah. But in a way in which it's not only equitable, but it's productive as well. You, you know the way you, you hear this argument, which really annoys me actually, but you hear this argument all the time about the guys who are furlonged and... Furlonged? No. Furlough, I think. It's a furlough, furlough. I don't yeah, know, so where, where did that word come from? I don't know, actually. Does anyone know what it was? I thought a furlong was a distance. Yeah, that's a furlong. Oh, that's a furlong. That's yeah, for racing. It's eighth of a mile. You know that because you, you like horse racing, don't you? No, I hate horse racing. Good man, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, furloughed. So the guy's getting their 350 euro Quid. a week. Yeah. And then people are saying, well, you know, they're not going to, it's going to be hard to get them out of the house again and, and yeah. working again because they've they've been enjoying this 350. So if, if it's not 350, if it's 100,000 or whatever that they can lay claim to, you know, surely that's a, a it could be for, for yeah, well, certain you, well, what you'd say people is, a disincentive. Yeah, completely. But I mean, this is the bizarre way of, look, again, this is, a, this is an accountant way of looking at the world, right? Too much money has never been a, dis a disincentive to anything. The unintended consequence might be a disincentive. You know, like 
you say, well, if I gave an individual a hundred grand, yeah, maybe the unintended consequence of that might be that this person wouldn't be that incentivized to go out to work. Right? Yeah. The consequence, think about the consequence yeah. is much, much greater, right? Yeah. That we're trying to do is become a dynamic source for business creation on the island. Oh no, I think the and yeah. look at the, and then for example, the multinationals will also look very positively because they'll think this is the type of society that we want to be involved with simply because yeah. they understand the relationship between capital and product and tax, etc. We still take the tax from them, but the difference between what they pay and what they ought to pay, yeah. we get in shares. Now, I read a great book this week called Angrynomics. I don't think the title is great, right? but by two brilliant... There's always there's too many nomics going oh, yeah. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that Kilkenomics, that'll never take <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah, exactly. Actually, we're going to go ahead with Kilkenomics. Oh, are you? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to, we're planning to go ahead as, as a full show. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, I just said, look, by the, by, by November, look, if, if we make, you know, yeah. if we're told in October we can't, well, any, we can't. Any names? We've a load of great names committed for this year. There's a great work guy called Branko Milanovic, who's an inequality specialist. Yeah. Jeff Sachs is going to come back. Oh, brilliant. We're he gonna, was great. We're also time. going to try and get as many women as possible. Marla. Marla's definitely going to come back if she'll come back from the Caribbean. No, we're going to get low, right? Yeah, great. But I think we're going to go ahead, right? And just go for it. But, look forward but to the that. book I'm talking about was written by two guys who will definitely be there, right? Uh, one is an old friend of mine, Mark Blythe, who's a professor at Brown, brilliant Scottish guy, great communicator. And the other guy is a fella who has been on my radar for a long time, an Irish economist called Eric Lonergan. Really, really interesting thinkers, both. Yeah. And they're talking about solutions to societal anger, that basically people are getting angry. But what fascinates me is one of their solutions, which is the following. Not a million miles from what we were talking about. Mm. They make the point, it's a very simple point. They say, look, really rich people since 2008 have availed of lower negative interest rates to do the following. They borrow at 0% or maybe half a percent. Yeah. And they buy companies that are yielding 5% or 4%, right? big blue chip companies. Yeah. So the dividend that they are being paid every year is about 5% of their investment. Yeah. Think about this, right? So dividend yield, 5%, you're borrowing at maybe half a percent. So you're making 4.5% free, yeah. right? And then whatever upside you get, capital gains, the share goes up, it's even more to you, right? And of course, they can lose as well. But think about the yield, right? Mm, mm. What they're saying is if rich guys do that, why don't poor guys do that? And by that they said, this is a game, this is a trick. That They say, negative interest rates, they regard as like an oil find. It's a one-off opportunity. Similar to the thinking I was yeah, talking about. Yeah, right? yeah. The state should, very simply, the NTMA here, go and borrow 10% of GDP. Right. 30 billion, 40 billion, right? At 0%. The Irish state this week borrowed billions of euros, I think 10 billion, at 0.28%. So one third of 1%. Right. So what they're saying is, borrow that sort of money, buy shares, create a wealth fund like the Norwegians do using yeah. their oil money, yeah. like the Saudis do a sovereign wealth fund. And in so doing, play the game of rich people, but give it to poor people. Yeah. And just play the game. So they're saying that negative real interest rates offer an opportunity to build wealth 
for the public in the same way as they provide the opportunity for rich private individuals to build wealth. So the way the 1% get rich is they avail of negative real interest rates yeah. to buy assets. Has a, has a state, any state, state, state no, has done this? It's a beautiful this. idea, no. though. It's yeah. a beautiful idea. It's basically saying, that's what rich guys do. Copy them. Yeah. Right? Copy them. Go into the market, borrow the money, maybe even use the Norwegian fund manager. So you lads are very straight up sort of Lutherans. You've managed your own wealth fund. You manage ours. Okay, first of all, there's going to be a downside to this. Well, the downside is that obviously shares go up and down. Yes. Right? But at the moment, the markets are incredibly volatile. They collapsed there. On Friday, yeah. And they were up the week before. Yeah. Now, And they're incredibly volatile at the moment. But if we borrow that 30, 40 billion or whatever it is and stick it into the stock market, we as a state then are very vulnerable to the highs and lows of of a, of any market, well, we, you know? We, we are if you're... And our, our, our yeah, psyche no, surely would change well, you, We are if you are what they call marking to market every day. So if every day you, what they call in, in trading, mark to market. So you basically mark your position to where the market is. Yeah. But if you look over long-term history, the way to make money is like Warren Buffett, invest and walk away, Yeah. right? And the reason is, what prompts inequality? The Tom, you know Thomas Piketty, the French economist, yeah. who wrote this great book about inequality. Yeah, you mentioned him before. His basic idea is that the rate of return on capital has been historically higher than the growth of the economy. Right. So therefore, the rate of return on capital is what drives stock prices in the long term. Right. If that's what drives inequality, so basically the owners of capital who get the fruits of the rate of return of capital are getting more money than workers who get the fruits of the growth rate of the economy, then the rich always get richer. Yeah. So if you, if you and I, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah and he's yeah, done yeah. all the work. He's done all the stats and the maths and blah, 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 yeah. going down centuries. Right? So invert that in the head. If you assume that, then the way to get rich for a society is to do precisely what rich people do because the rate of return on capital is higher. So you borrow at incredibly low rates, yeah. which is a one-off opportunity. And the reason interest rates are incredibly low now in Europe, John, is Europe is getting old. Yeah, Europe is an old, rich continent. And old people save. That's the way of the world. So as societies get older, they save more, they invest less, right? So consequently, mm. what happens is we in Ireland are in a beautiful position because we're the youngest of the old. Think about that, right? Yeah. We're in the oldest part of the world. Or well, the Japs are actually the oldest, right? But we're in a very old part of the world, but we're the youngest of the old, right? So we have a young population. Yeah. So we should avail of the fact that the Germans and the French are getting old. Interest rates are now at zero. Play the game that Piketty explained why rich people get rich because the return of capital is so high. Invert it on its head. And as Lonergan and Blythe say, create a wealth fund by looking at zero interest rates or even negative interest rates as a one-off amazing opportunity to become wealthy. Let me ask you one other question. Like there's, ups, there's upsides and downsides yeah, the, the, to this. The, the downside is that you, you buy at the wrong time, there's a massive stock market crash, then you're forced to sell when the stocks are really, really low yeah. and you crystallize losses. You don't have to do that. But you can actually ride it out. What about the multinationals themselves then? Because if we buy a whole load of stocks, then we have voting rights as a state. Is that not a risk for them that they're going to be partly state-owned? 
Well, it's interesting. The same dilemma applies to the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the United Arab Emirates Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund. They all take positions in large companies. Yeah. The companies up until now have been pretty agnostic as to who owns them, their shares. Yeah. And what you would do is you would blend the whole thing. So you would, you know, 10 billion sounds like a hell of a lot to you and me. Mm. It's kind of small beer for the amount of money that's knocking around the world. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know it sounds mad, yeah, but it yeah, is, yeah. you know. There's private funds, which are much bigger than 10 billion. Yeah, yeah, I you suppose, know? yeah. In the, one individual, if you think about it. So what I'm saying is now is the time to stand back, figure out where we're going for the next 40 years. What is the plan in Ireland? What is the plan? When when I look at our, you, know, we, we, you said I, I've lost control of the commune here, right? <laughs> you sure have. But, <laughs> the commune is, a, it's a little bit chaotic. <laughs> Anarchy is broken out in the McWilliams commune. When I look at the kids, I think, who in government is staying awake at night worrying about their future? You know, how are, how are they going to yeah. live in this society? How are we going to create this because I think I've always thought, John, we are two or three good decisions away from creating a beautiful society here. Only two or three. Right. Right? Big decisions, right? What do we want to do? How do we want to position ourselves? And the beautiful thing about being small is it does make you fragile. You don't get to set the terms and conditions like a big country. But you can do things on the sly almost that people don't notice. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you can yeah. actually, you know, small. America You're can't. just a bit nimble. A America bit can't nimble. do this. It's just too big. Yeah. It, would, it would blow the stock market out of the water, right? If the United States did this. But we can do it. Yeah. And given that, you know, the European Union will probably get a spurt of integrationist activity after this, maybe, maybe, we've got to figure out. How do we play the game within the monetary union, using the euro, available of the cheap German interest rates and French interest rates, and play the game? Because what is interesting is if you look since we were kids, John, since you and I were on Windsor Park as kids, right? Mm. This society and economy has changed profoundly, right? Yeah. And we haven't even noticed it. Had you said to me, for example, in 1980, that the Irish government would be even getting close to 10 billion euros a year from American corporations and tax. Get out of here, man. Because we had no American corporations, right? Or that Ireland would go from a population that was falling to a population that was growing. Yeah. Or that Ireland would go from half the income of Germany, which it was the case in 1980, to a higher income than the average German. Right. Say okay. That that couldn't happen, and I'm, I'm actually not using GDP figures here. I'm yeah. using GNI figures. It's all happened. Are we that? Are that Ireland would have 18 percent of the population would be foreign born? I'd say that that couldn't happen. It's all happened, and it's happened because of incremental good decisions. Now there's still loads of problems, but now's the opportunity to say let's fix those problems and let's think laterally, not vertically. Let's think a little bit unconventionally and say can that be done? And because we're small, we can do it. That would have been the most peculiar conversation on the side of the road. <laughs> exactly. But the side of the road, John, we have these 10 majors. Give us one of your majors. Uh, by the way, John and I spent an inordinate amount of time on a wall 
smoking <laughs> fags, not talking about American multinationals, it must be said, our tax rates, our equality, our visions for the society. It was more, go down there to the thirsty eye off license and gets a shoulder of vodka. <laughs> shoulder <laughs> How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, as you know, every week we do our Schumpeter slot. And the idea is that this crazy economist called Joseph Schumpeter's idea was that at the center of economics was the entrepreneur, the business person, the person who takes risk, the person who wakes up in the middle of the night and goes, Jesus, can I pay the rent? Can I pay the staff? What about the suppliers, etc.? And it's their genius and their dynamism that keeps the whole thing going. Now, the problem with COVID is it stops the whole thing. But yet, business people, small business people in particular, have to keep going. So every week, we examine a business that is trying to figure out what to do and how to come to terms with the shutdown. And now more interestingly, maybe how to come to terms with the lock up as opposed to lockdown as we go into the next phase of opening up the economy. And I am delighted, I'm delighted to have Joe and Tony of Cocoa Brew Coffee on the line to tell us about what you pair did. Joe and Tony, lovely to see you. How are you doing? We're doing good. Great. Yeah. Tell us, Thanks for having us. Not at all, not at all, not at all. We'll be, we'll be, we'll be into you the minute you're open up very, very, very shortly. Tell me about Cocoa Brew Coffee. When did you start? Where did you get the idea? How were you doing? And then what happened? Well, Cocoa Brew Coffee. So we started it in 2015. We were in Sydney. Okay. We'd just come home. And uh, Tony, Tony went with the idea of starting coffee business yeah i mean very passionate about coffee and i 
even before I went to Sydney, I was in the hospitality here in Ireland. And yeah, just uh, over there, there's a huge coffee culture and it was just, I really enjoyed it and uh, came back here and like I said, yeah, the, the great idea to start a coffee company. By the way, you see, the great thing about this is you can't see them, you know, when you're listening to the podcast, but I can see the pair of them and she's giving them these looks now. As <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to tell you the real story of how the van originated. Come on, give us a story. I have to give us a story. So you start with the van. Where does it come from, Joe? Okay. Right. He'll deny this, but the van comes from, I was working in St. Vincent in Sydney for five years and a coffee van for the last couple of months I was there. I used to come around when we were on night shift and he'd pull up outside the hospital and they'd ring up through the hospital and say, coffee guy is here. So we could go out at two o'clock in the morning and get a coffee. I told Tony this and he was like, that's a great idea. And literally within a few weeks, he'd gone and bought the VW in Monaghan from some guy. So you got the VW van in Monaghan, you customised it into a coffee, a mobile coffee. And then what you do with your mobile coffee van? You realise it's not as easy as just driving it out onto the street and uh, trading. The casual trading laws in the city are very restrictive. There's only really four spots where you're allowed to trade from and they're all licensed and they're all taken and there's a long waiting list but then from there I got a contract down in Kildare Village they were looking for a coffee vendor there I mean it just kind of went from different events to different events and then after two years of that I was like right it's time to get a brick and mortar have that as the base and then while still using the van and obviously the van is still a great asset to have. So it wasn't such a bad idea Joe the idea no. in the van <laughs> but so tell me so then you, then you decide okay so you were flying along you were doing good yeah. trade yeah and how is it trading in Temple Bar? I mean, what's the, what's different? Well, trading in Temple Bar, I mean, I think people have a kind of misconception of it that it's just packed all year round. It's not. There's, there is kind of two seasons to it. There's the low season and then there's the summer season, which is all the tour, where all tours come. So tell me, you know. so COVID arrives. Joe, you're in the ICU, never busier. Tony's like, oh, well, at least somebody's working in the gaff. <laughs> so tell me, what are you doing now? Basically now I've, I've, like everyone else, I've had no choice. I've had to move the whole business online. So I did roast in, in the cafe in Temple Bar. And basically what I've done to the kitchen downstairs is I've just converted that into a, into a micro roastery. So now I'm roasting coffee in there three, three to four days a week and set up a website, cbroasters.com. Okay, great. cbroasters.com. That's it. And uh, yeah, you can just order your coffee now for, for home. You know, where people are spending a lot of time at home now. All the offices are at home, so it's time to get the coffee to them, opposed to, you know, people coming to the cafe for a, for their brew. Well, listen, we will be definitely, myself and John, if you'd let delinquents like us inside the door, which clearly is up to you. We're in Temple Bar, anything goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The pair of us are still drinking Maxwell House, you know. But uh, tell me, tell me, if I want to order coffee right now from you, where do I go? Right now, if you log on to cbroasters.com, you can order your coffee there. And today now what we're doing for all Dave McWilliams podcast listeners, we're giving a 20% discount. Just type in code McWilliams into ah, the... Loving the that. <laughs> and there's uh, 20% off. Happy days. Listen, best of luck, guys. Tony and Joe, thanks so much. And Good we will see you. Thank you very much, Dave. That's... Uh, Tony and Joe there. So, cafes are open from next week. So go down and grab a coffee, Cocoa Brew Cafe down Temple Bar. Uh, great story and, and great people. Damn fine brew, that. Yeah, it's good, good brew. Yeah. Good brew.
Do you know, I was reading during the week a really interesting article about, you know, we were talking about race relations and Black Lives Matter earlier on. But I was reading during the week about, particularly in the startup world, there is a huge disparity in in the way venture funds and the angel investors and all the rest invest in startups by black people. That it that is they don't. That they don't. And it it goes back to kind of what you were talking before about groupthink and this yeah. kind of, uh, what do they call it? The confirmation bias. Confirma- yeah, yeah. And the shortcuts that our brains take. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, I've been exploring all this, John. Since this kicked off, I went back to reread a book that I read many years ago by a fellow called Sharad Paul. And Sharad Paul is a, an Indian dermatologist. That's what he's saying. Dermatologist? A dermatologist, a skin doctor. Right. He's written a book called Skin. And we had him at the Doki Book Festival a couple of years ago. Right. And the reason we had him at the Doki Book Festival is I heard, Shan actually heard him speak at an event. And he has an amazing, so he's a dermatologist. He's an amazing book called Skin, A Biography. Right. So it's a biography of the organ. Skin. We forget yeah. that our skin is the, the biggest, biggest organ. Exactly. In the, yeah, I do remember so, that from biology. So, so, uh, so, I've been rereading it because of the politics of skin, and what really, really intrigued me was why we are white and other people are black. Why is that? Why is our skin color as it is? Right. It transpires that skin color is a battle between two vitamins, vitamin D and folic acid. Okay. A deficiency in either of these causes very unpleasant diseases. Uh, in vitamin D, you can get rickets if you don't have vitamin D. That's osteoporosis, right, yeah. all these bone diseases. Yeah, yeah. And there is a reason why women, when pregnant, are told to take folic acid. Yeah. To prevent spina bifida, another unpleasant disease. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, I do so remember hold that, that thought, yeah. right? Hold that thought, right? When we evolved from apes, our brains grew very, very quickly. Yeah. And as our brain grew, imagine our brain is like a computer. As, yeah. it gets, as it gets bigger and bigger, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. So we had to develop a way of cooling down. So we developed sweat glands in our skin and we shed our hair. Right, okay. And what happened, therefore, is if you look at an ape, right? Interesting thing is if you, if you look at an ape, their skin underneath is pink. Yeah. A, a chimpanzee's skin is pink underneath yeah. their hair, right? Yeah. So what happened then was that our skin started pink. But if you're born and live in an area where the sun is very intense, what happens with folic acid, and this is the interesting thing, is that ultraviolet rays destroy the folic acid in your skin. Right. So the genetic and evolutionary response to this was to develop melanin. Melanin makes your skin darker in order to protect your skin to protect your folic acid in order for humans not to have spina bifida. So this is, so skin is a byproduct of an evolutionary mechanism to protect pregnant women. Right. So think about it. So, this, okay, so, okay. So, so people who lived in the tropics, skin went darker to protect them. Yeah. So those people then start to migrate up out of Africa. Yeah. And we end up going to places where the sun is less intense, which means that black skin is protecting you, but you don't necessarily need it. Yeah. Because the skin is less intense. Now here comes vitamin D, and this is the battle between folic acid and vitamin D. Vitamin D is synthesized from the sun. Yes, it is, yeah. yeah. Right? So if you have very dark skin, 
in places where there's no light, you have a vitamin D deficiency. Right. So your skin lightens in order to allow you absorb vitamin D. Now, this is evolutionary over hundreds of thousands of years, okay? Yeah, millions of years. Millions of years. So yeah. what we do is we become whiter as we go to the north, right. which is an evolutionary mechanism to absorb more vitamin D so we won't get rickets. Right. So okay. think about it. So rickets is a, so skin color. And the is sun a, isn't so intense that it will damage the folic acid. Precisely. Further north. Okay, precisely. Gotcha, gotcha, right? gotcha. Precisely. So what you have, therefore, is a battle between two vitamins and skin is the genetic byproduct. Skin color. Right. Now, what I found deeply fascinating as a redser, okay? Because <laughs> you know my, my red yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. right? So let's, That's let's, a whole different It's a whole different thing. Well, let's, <laughs> let's go a bit further, right? So basically you have this battle between folic acid and vitamin D going on evolutionary, as you said, over millions of years. Yeah. Certainly, certainly the last million years. Yeah as we moved out of Africa, yeah. right? And then you think, okay, where do blue eyes come from? Where do green eyes come from? Where does really white skin come from? So obviously really white skin comes from the people who migrated up to places where the sun was incredibly shallow, like Ireland, okay? Yeah. There wasn't much sun around. But then something else happens, which is really, I find fascinating. During the agricultural revolutions of when we moved from being hunter-gatherers, to cereal-based farmers. Yeah. Something really odd happened. The hunter-gatherers, if you read Sapiens, you know your man's book, Yuval Harari. Yeah. He makes the point, it's very well made, that hunter-gatherers had a much more interesting diet than we have. Okay? Yes. It's a much more diverse diet. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and they've the, got more protein in it. because Exactly. They're... But the interesting thing, one of the ways of which hunter-gatherers got protein was through eating fish. And fish oil is another source of ingested vitamin D. Right. Keep this in the back of your head. Right? right, okay. So as we became very proficient farmers based on grass, because wheat is a grass, okay? Yeah. We migrated away from eating fish to the same level. Therefore, our vitamin D potential deficiency was even greater because mm. we weren't getting an ingested form of vitamin yeah. D. Yeah, yeah. So our skin went even lighter and our eyes went lighter over evolution. Yeah. And so your pigmentation in your skin... It's lighter and lighter and lighter. And our eyes changed from brown to blue to green. Right. And redzers are the extreme version of this, my tribe. But the implication <laughs> is, John, the implication is... You're extremist. ...that red-haired people are only about 7,000 years old. Now, that's interesting. That we're, the, we're the youngest of all humans. You're an anomaly. We're an anomaly. And the reason is that if it's related to cereal production and agricultural production, then it's related to when we went from hunter-gatherers to agricultural. Yeah. Then it's related to a time. Then you can pinpoint the emergence of the redzer somewhere around the Baltic. Yes. Okay? Yeah. About yeah, yeah. 8,000 years ago. So we are the youngest design version of humanity. And the reason that there's loads of redzers here, this is also of interest, is because of the Gulf Stream. Explain yeah. that one to this me. This is a fascinating yeah, one. Right? Go on. So Ireland is on a latitude where we we should be much much colder. Yes, of course, right? yeah, because yeah. we're really far north. So if you think the equivalent Canadian province of Labrador, Newfoundland, yeah, it's cold over there, right? Yeah, long. Well, long it's also that you know the, the London is on the same latitude as Moscow, for instance. So we have the Gulf Stream. Now, what does the Gulf Stream do? It warms you up. It brings rain. Yeah. What does rain and warmth do? It's very good for grass. This is why Swedes tan in Majorca and paddies don't. This is a very interesting thing, right? You know, if you look at Swedes, Swedes look like us. 
But when they go in holliers, they go brown. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. Here's a gem. This is a gem, right? The Gulf Stream means we've more grass than the Swedes. Loads of Sweden is tundra. Right? Yeah. They've no grass. It's not as good for growing grass. Yeah. Growing grass means cows, dairy, yeah. pigs, right? All that sort of thing, right? Over thousands of years, Irish people got their protein from animals that grazed on grass more than Swedes who continued to eat fish. Right. Okay? Okay. It's right? Which is why the Swedes are love a bit of fish. Okay, still, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Herring. Now, they herring. Love the... And the reason they ate herring is because they didn't have enough cows because they didn't have enough grass because it was too cold. Yeah. And the reason it was too cold is they didn't have the Gulf Stream because the Gulf Stream only goes up as far as, as here, Scotland, and then a bit of Norway, and then it heads off. Yeah. So in inner Baltics, inner Scandies, don't have that. The reason their skin is darker is because they absorbed more vitamin D than us from their diet. So it's an adaptive evolutionary process. So they didn't need to have the pink skin that we have, which is highly sensitive. And right. it's only sensitive to absorb in the vitamin D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is the evolutionary reason that A, Scandies go dark and we don't. Yeah. B, there's a preponderance of red-haired people here. C, the Redsers are the youngest design of all humans. Yeah. But more importantly, given race relations now, that the color of your skin is the evolutionary consequence of a battle between two vitamins, folic acid and vitamin D. So, th so this... Adaptation also applies to other areas. It applies to economics, John. That yeah. is, yeah, 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 yeah. I believe the, you know, I believe the economy evolves. It doesn't grow. Yeah. I believe it's much more like evolution. And to get back to our point earlier, we need to adapt to our circumstances. We don't, we don't have oil like the Norwegians, so we can't adapt, yeah. right? But we have multinationals, we have a tax base, and we have a preponderance of disposition to the American commercial infrastructure. Yeah. So we adapt. We use our advantages on an evolutionary basis to make those advantages more permanent. That's what evolution's all about. Yeah. And that's yeah. how we do it. So we look at the multinationals as a resource, not simply a company, but as a holistic resource that can be used for the next generation, and we adapt. So money is a vitamin. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing there? It's David. Now, the whole objective of the podcast, as you know, has been to share economics, learn economics, make it easier, make it more accessible, make it more relevant. And in that regard, what we've done is we introduced a couple of months ago the macroeconomic course. Now we're introducing a new idea. It's going to be called Ask Mac. And what it is, it's a tutorial. But the difference is it's a tutorial designed and delivered and executed by you. You pick the topics. We then give you a tutorial every fortnight on that topic. The first topic is the bond market because we were inundated with your questions about the bond market, how it works, etc. Have a listen to it. The first one is free. And if you like it, sign up and join us on patreon.com. David McWilliams for the Ask Mac tutorial.